This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The campaign of Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mandela Barnes has removed two police officers from his list of endorsements, which was released last Thursday. The two officers removed from the list of nine current and former law enforcement endorsements were John Siegel, a police captain for the city of La Crosse, and Malik Frazier, the Racine County deputy sheriff, reports the Associated Press. A campaign spokesperson explained that the two officers were included in the list of endorsements due to a clerical error. While Deputy Sheriff Frazier is a personal supporter of Barnes' bid for the Senate seat, a spokesperson from the Sheriff's Office explained that it was against federal law for officers to publicly endorse candidates. Siegel, who was a Democratic candidate for Sheriff in La Crosse County, claimed to have a conversation with the Barnes campaign, but confirmed that he never made an endorsement. The construction company owned by Tim Michaels, Wisconsin's Republican candidate for governor, has had a long history of sexual harassment and racial discrimination allegations, reports WDJT Milwaukee. The allegations against the Michaels Corporation go back over two decades, with five lawsuits being filed against the company between 1998 and 2020. These include several instances where female employees sued the company claiming they faced repeated verbal and physical abuse. The company was also sued in 2020 when a black employee filed a lawsuit over allegations of racial hostility, including getting called racial slurs. Michaels responded to the allegations on Twitter today, saying that they are unproven and do not reflect the training and culture at the Michaels Corporation. Thousands of residents on Madison's west side lost power last night after an alleged drug driver hit an electrical box. Channel 3000 reports that the accident took place around 1130 last night near Elver Park. Over 2,000 customers were affected in total, and all Align Energy customers had their power restored by 3 a.m. The Madison Metropolitan School Board voted unanimously last night to approve a $5 pay increase for approximately 720 employees. According to the Capital Times, the vote authorized $8.4 million in additional funding for salary schedule changes, which came after months of organizing amidst ongoing staff shortages. While Superintendent Carlton Jenkins reiterated his support for the change and its long-term benefits, concerns about funding loom. This year, funding for the salary increase will come from a combination of unallocated rainy day funds and from money allocated to K-12 education through the American Rescue Plan Act. Moving forward, the spending will create an annual structural deficit of $7 million. Last week, Madison District 17 Alder Gary Halverson resigned from the city council after his name was found on a leaked list of members of the Oath Keepers. Halverson maintains that he joined the far-right gang in error and that he quit the group as soon as he found out about its far-right ties. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. Today, Madison Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney came to the defense of her colleague, Gary Halverson, who was, until late last week, a fellow Madison Alder. Halverson resigned his position late last week after citing harassment to his house and family in the wake of his name appearing on the membership rolls for the Oath Keepers, classified by the Southern Poverty Law Center as an extremist group. Alder Harrington McKinney said in a statement today that the blowback to Halverson has been unfair and unjust, defending the former Alder as having served both his district and the city. Halverson was one of six elected officials in Wisconsin to be named in a leak of the Oath Keeper membership rolls earlier this month. Halverson has characterized his involvement as short-lived and the result of being misled about the nature of the group. 
Halverson has written that he was led to believe that the group was for patriotic veterans and left the group once he learned of their far-right ties. But some city leaders denounced Halverson after the leak. Council President Keith Furman and Council Vice President J.L. Curry released a statement saying that the extremist views of the organization had been known for over a decade and that mere seconds of Googling the group would have shown their far-right ties. Currently, if you search the Oath Keepers on Google, the first result is from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which states that the group played a major role in the Unite the Right rally in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, which led to the death of one counter-protester. The group also played a key role in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol and glorified Kyle Rittenhouse after he shot and killed two people in Kenosha during Black Lives Matter protests. After having his home vandalized and saying that his family had received threats, Halverson resigned from the council last week. Darla LeClaire is the vice president of the city council of Two Rivers and the only Wisconsin elected official named in the Oath Keepers leak who responded to WORT's request for comment. LeClaire's story is similar to Halverson's, though she joined the group in around 2009 when there wasn't much information available about the group. My understanding and I think this is the way they kind of sucked people in, was that it was like a veterans organization. And my thought was that, okay, this is going to be a great way to meet other people who have been in the military and some probably active duty. And then also, this might sound odd, I was under the impression that it would also help teach you um, like how to be more self-reliant. And to me, that was how do you... You know, how do you filter pond water? You know, if you're if you're out in the middle of nowhere, what are different things that you could do to protect yourself? LeClaire says that she was a member of the group for just a few months. The thing is, is that once I realized, and I, I totally get where Gary's coming from, because it takes a little while before you start getting their mail. I think it was mailers. I don't remember really getting too much email, but it was something through the mail and it was, and you I saw that and I went, no, <laughs> if this is their philosophy, it is definitely not mine. And I just set them aside, had, didn't even think about them again until now. LeClaire says that the people of Two Rivers have been mostly supportive of her, giving her the benefit of the doubt. John Lewis is a research fellow at the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Lewis explains how the Oath Keepers go about recruiting new members. They've made concerted efforts over the years to target and recruit veterans, members of law enforcement, first responders, effectively making the pitch that we are an extension of the oath that you took when you joined military or law enforcement. And they have really attempted to kind of corner the market on individuals who, again, you know, view duty, honor, patriotism as, you know, kind of some of the some of the their their core principles. As for Gary Halverson, the only evidence as to why he joined the group is his own word. And older Harrington McKinney says she believes him. She says that Halverson never treated her unfairly and that his voting record clearly and fairly represents who he is. But Lewis says he isn't so sure. While Darla LeClaire joined before the group was well known, Halverson joined in June of 2020. The front page of the Oath Keepers website on June 4th of 2020 shows, quote, news, end quote, 
articles peddling disinformation on COVID lockdowns and the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine, a horse deworming medication, in treating COVID. Lewis says that while it is possible someone could join the group without knowing these philosophies, he says that it really stretches the bounds of what is possible. By summer of 2020, right, obviously at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in the midst of the racial justice protest after the murder of George Floyd, and as the Oath Keepers were, you know, really neck deep in promoting already the, the, the idea that the election would be stolen, that the government would use COVID-19 protocols and lockdowns as a way to attack the rights of everyday Americans, that it does kind of defy, <laughs> defy belief that, you know, an individual would not know exactly who the Oath Keepers were by that point in time. But regardless of whether someone is a fully supporting Oath Keeper member, Lewis says that these sort of anti-government ideologies are on the rise. The anti-government ideologies in the U.S. have kind of metastasized so far beyond just the Oath Keepers to the point where the ideology that they embody, the narratives that they have latched onto, are no longer niche, are no longer relegated to, you know, a, a, a conspiracy internet forum. It's conspiracies that are being pushed forward by, you know, mainstream news outlets and members of Congress and who are very comfortable pushing, you know, these conspiracies that they know will lead people to radicalization and in some instances will lead people to mobilize to violence. Meanwhile, the seat remains unfilled. The application deadline to fill the seat for the remainder of the term to next spring is October 3rd. So far, at least one person has thrown their hat into the ring, Sabrina Madison, founder of the Progress Center for Black Women. She says that she's applying to fill the vacancy because... I do feel like I've, I've been able to sort of curate conversations and relationships with folks over the years where I've been able to make some uh, movement towards the shared end goal and create some shared progress. So the outcome is not um, like one-sided, but the outcome of some sort of shared goal meets most of our needs. The Madison Common Council will appoint a new alder on October 25th to serve until April of next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Last Friday, workers walked out of the Noodles and Company on State and Johnson Streets, located near the state capitol in downtown Madison, shutting it down. Greg Jaboski spoke to one of the workers there about the reasons behind the walkout. On Friday, people walking down State Street and toward the capitol building, Madison's main shopping and restaurant drag, could see that the prominently placed Noodles and Company restaurant on State Street in Johnson was closed, with signs taped to the store's windows and doors indicating that it had been closed by striking workers. Noodles and Company is a Colorado-based national restaurant chain with operations in most states. WRT spoke to Spencer Neeson, a worker there and one of the organizers of the action, who explained why workers walked on Friday. It started Friday. We all just didn't go into work. We didn't even get it open for the day. And it happened because we all kind of realized our wages were just not fair. We heard that new workers were making about the same as workers that had been here for 10 years and our managers, which was true. New people were getting hired at $16. We have managers that have worked here for over a decade that are getting paid $16.83. So when we found that out, we just kind of realized that it was unacceptable. So. I tried to talk to a bunch of coworkers separately about their wage and what was happening with it. And once I realized kind of what was happening to everyone, 
It was pretty spontaneous. One sign taped to the store's window on Friday declared, closed until fair wages, in bold letters. According to Neeson, the current low pay means that some Noodles & Company workers can't afford local rent and are currently unhoused. Another of the signs on the closed shop on Friday was a clear list of demands by the striking workers. These included demands for pay minimums, including an $18 starting wage, $23 for shift managers, $27 for assistant managers, and $1 raises for each additional year of employment. The workers' sign also demanded personal time off and sick time for workers who have been there for at least three months and no retaliation for workers exercising their rights. The timing of the work stoppage worked well, explained Neeson. Our general manager and our area manager were away. They were in Texas for like a summit, and we decided it was the perfect time to go on strike. And once you have that momentum, it's hard for them to try and get you back. Communication about the potential job action was established beforehand among the Noodles & Company store workers, said Neeson. It appears that some information was leaked to Noodles & Company management before the action, Neeson believes. But on Friday, the closing held. Neeson describes the company's response on Friday. They tried to call us, they tried to text us, but we kind of figured that it was a tactic to stop it before it started. started, and they tried to call, like, other managers to open our store, but we were waiting outside, and we just kind of said, like, please don't do that, and they didn't. So we have, like, a regional operating manager, and he flew out from Indiana to come to our store. We also have HR coming to talk to us now. So it was, it was a pretty quick response. Neeson gives this personal reason for organizing and taking this action. I I just kind of decided that there were there were a lot of people that I work with that deserve more than what they're getting, and they're the ones that, like, deserve more. So that's why. That's why I did it. That was Spencer Neeson, a worker at Noodles & Company on State Street in Madison and one of the organizers of a Friday walkout there demanding fair wages and benefits. The restaurant was open for reduced hours on Saturday and Sunday. Someone at the State Street Noodles & Company told WORT that the store was open today and directed that any inquiries be emailed to the company's Colorado headquarters press office. We did not receive a response by broadcast time. For the WRT 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabowski. Time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with state news writer Alex Tan about what's happening with the federal plan to forgive some student debt. Chances are your safe bet would be to uh, at least take a look at the application, which is going to be released in early October. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by state news writer Alex Tan to discuss what current and former students should know about President Joe Biden's loan forgiveness plan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. 
Can you discuss the basics of President Biden's loan forgiveness plan and how much money borrowers can expect to get forgiven? Yeah, so uh, Biden's student loan forgiveness plan is more on the modest end of a lot of the student loan forgiveness plans that the Democratic Party was discussing uh, last election. Uh, So it's mostly just $10,000 for most people earning an income below $125,000 for single people uh, or joint filing couples who earned under $250,000. And uh, if you uh, qualified for a Pell Grant, you would get an additional $10,000 on top of that. But that's pretty much it. It's just a blanket flat $10,000 for everyone. What does this plan mean for students that are currently enrolled in a university or college? Uh, So for those currently enrolled as an undergraduate, uh, you're completely eligible. uh, But uh, students who file taxes under their parents, or they didn't file independently of their parents, or they're still claimed as a dependent, their eligibility hinges on parental income, not their own. Uh, So they'll have to file through their parents uh, or file with their parents' tax information. And it also depends on how recently they were a student. So loans dispersed before June 30th of this year are eligible, but anytime after, not, not eligible. How can people get their loans forgiven? Is it automatic or is there an application? The U.S. Department of Education uh, supposedly has uh, the necessary information on 8 million borrowers to make this qualify, uh, to make them qualify automatically. Um, But that leaves the vast majority of people who might qualify uh, unaccounted for. So chances are your safe bet would be to uh, at least take a look at the application, which is going to be released in early October. How widespread is student debt in the state of Wisconsin? So uh, the state of Wisconsin, compared to the average among other states in the U.S., is slightly better off. Um, But over 687,000 Wisconsin borrowers uh, owe more than $21.4 billion uh, combined in student loans. Um, And the median federal student loan debt here is about $17,000. Can you describe why Wisconsinites will have to report relief on their taxes? Unfortunately, student debt relief uh, is subject to state tax uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, This is not true in most states except for 13 uh, and the federal government. Uh, So federal income tax is not going to be represented on whatever relief you receive, uh, but it will be treated as taxable income uh, by the state of Wisconsin because we just haven't changed it uh, and the legislature hasn't done anything about it. Uh, And for individual income above uh, 24,000 or so, uh, that's like a rate of 5.3%. So that's like several hundred dollars in tax for those who receive $10,000, a thousand or more for those who receive um, 20,000. When are payments on loans set to resume? Uh, Payments right now are delayed or put off, uh, and they're set to resume uh, not until at least January. So even if uh, all of your student debt is not paid off uh, by the student loan uh, or student debt forgiveness, you still have until uh, January. What is the current status of Biden's plan, and have there been any challenges to it? So... There haven't been major challenges. Uh, It's probably going to go through, uh, but, you know, uh, it's never clear with politics. 
Um, Biden issued his initiative through like executive action, uh, which is not really precedented. Uh, and he does cite the 2000, uh, 2003 Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act as like justification for this. Uh, but a lot of people believe the move is outside his authority. So there was this former Republican Senate candidate uh, from Oregon uh, had filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration. But, you know, uh, such a lawsuit, uh, in my opinion, has a minimal chance of succeeding. Uh, but, you know, it, it's still a slim possibility. Just in general, what do you think this plan means for current college students and also recent graduates? In my opinion, it means different things. For those who recently graduated, it's like, it's it's just relief. Like, you know, uh, you went to college one time and your debt is going to be forgiven one time. For those who are still in college or might pursue college in the future, uh, this is not really something that's going to happen again, in my opinion. Uh, it, it Like student debt relief is one of those Band-Aid measures that doesn't do anything directly to make college more affordable in the future or to prevent prices from growing. It just relieves the debt that's currently uh, making it difficult for people out there in the workforce. Uh, so if you're going to college in the future, this plan might not be nearly as helpful to you, um, but it's going to take the pressure off of a lot of middle-class Americans. Is there anything else you think students should know about the loan forgiveness plan? I think just pay attention to what your tax uh, servicer tells you. Uh, make sure the government has your information and whatnot uh, so that you can receive instructions and don't like wait until after the deadline, though that's a couple of years later. But besides that, you know, it's pretty cut and straightforward. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Alex. Of course. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg looks gently at soft-shell turtles and details how you can tell the difference between two species that live in Wisconsin. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I've chosen to talk about soft-shell turtles. They are my absolute favorite turtle species of all turtle species here in Wisconsin. And did you know that we actually have two different kinds of soft-shell turtles? I know this because we have to figure out which kinds of soft-shell turtles we have in rehabilitation every time we get one admitted, but also because we hatch out the eggs of many soft-shell turtles, and if we for some reason aren't able to easily identify the adults, it's really fun to try to do that when they're little hatchlings. So how do you know the difference, and, and what is the difference between a soft-shell turtle and a hard-shell turtle, and what species we have? Well, the cool thing about spiny soft-shell turtles and smooth soft-shell turtles turtles is that both of them have this really cool look to their carapace, which is the 
top part of the shell. It's not hard and bony like a, a snapping turtle or a painted turtle would be. It's actually really smooth and leathery, and they look kind of like manta rays or stingrays. It's just the weirdest thing. It's actually really thick, but it's also not uh, hard. So they're really easy to see. They kind of look like this big pancake with soft, floppy sides. It's, uh, they, you know, they could be really huge. They, you know, start off after they hatch from their eggs to be about maybe, uh, you know, half dollar size or quarter size. And then they can grow up to be absolutely huge. So the size of the carapace uh, for females can be anywhere from seven to 18 inches wide, or for males, uh, usually only five to 19.5, uh, excuse me. So the females are actually quite a bit larger than the males in this species, um, and they are found pretty much well throughout the entire state. Now they're different from our smooth soft shell turtles. Uh, they're a lot more common. It's the ones that we tend to get here at our wildlife center. And we do have uh, seven little spiny soft shell hatchlings this week that are being released, which is super exciting, back to where they came from uh, over in the Rock Lake area, which is in Jefferson County. That's where the parent was found, eggs were collected, and then it took you know about 90 days or so for them to hatch. So the spiny soft shell can be separated from smooth soft shell, which is actually a special concern species in our state by the little ridges that are on the top of the carapace. So again, the carapace, that top part of the shell, if you go towards the head, which would be rostrally or towards the, the front, there's actually little bumps that are along the top ridge of the, the carapace, the shell itself, and that can distinguish a spiny soft shell from smooth. They also have two yellow uh, black bordered lines along each side of their head. So it kind of looks like little racing stripes. And then they also have a different nostril shape. So the nostrils are separated uh, into two holes or just two circles. And that's for the smooth soft shell. Whereas the spiny soft shell actually has just a little septum that deviates in between the holes. And so it looks like a C shape. So if you were to look at a soft shell turtle and say, okay, well, there's bumps on the ridges of the carapace. There's those little racing stripe lines on the sides of their nose. And then their nose nostrils have a different shape where it's just a C shape and, and it's connected. That's going to be your spiny soft shell. So we see a lot of those. They are very, very cool. They are very aggressive though, which is different than the smooth soft shells. They, they actually sometimes you can tell when a turtle is more aggressive, maybe what species it is. They like to bite. They, they can be really uh, sassy, very difficult to hold also because of how smooth the shell is and how floppy the outsides are. So if you're trying to rescue a soft shell turtle, they're actually quite difficult to handle and to pick up because of how smooth and floppy they are on the outsides of that shell. Because normally we would recommend that you you know, if you're wearing protective gloves, that's super helpful, but you always want to reach from behind the turtle, which is towards the back of the shell near the tail, and you just grab on to, to either side or both sides if you can and stick a hand underneath the plaster on. That's the opposite side, the bottom side of the shell, to help that turtle cross the road. So going in the direction that obviously they're heading. So we see soft shells, um, you know, occurring in a lot of areas, uh, mostly large rivers, lakes, reservoirs, all that kind of thing. They like mud and sand, and so that's where they're going to bury their eggs about 10 inches deep and they actually leave uh, the hole open in the sand uh, about five inches wide or so uh, because sunlight believe it or not is actually really important to the development of their eggs so not a lot of people know that sometimes they will be buried over to help with predators but in general they tend to keep those holes open 
They also feed on things like fish, invertebrates, uh, mollusks, carrion, a lot of great information available on the DNR website about these turtles. If you ever want to look it up, you can go to dnr.wi.gov and you can look up pretty much any species that's here in Wisconsin. And then this moose shell turtle is just super cool. There's only a couple of counties that are known to have these present and really they're found around the different rivers, the Chippewa, the Lower Black, the Mississippi River, and Lower Wisconsin River. So those are the ranges. Generally, they only have one clutch of eggs every year and they also like the sandy areas, but again, they are going to have that smooth shell, uh, less of the the black and yellow striping, and then also just maybe a little bit nicer of a turtle, less aggressive. Uh, and then again, those nostril shapes, so two separate holes for each, one for each nostril. So that's pretty neat. I think the state status and the if you're interested in seeing what the state and federal status of the, the smooth soft shell turtle is, there's some great uh, state guidance and species guidance available also on the website. And then there's some really great research studies that have been done uh, talking about the presence of different of types of these turtles. So if you, if you look up a little bit about their natural history, you can kind of see how many studies have been done in different states. There's a really fun one uh, that was done in 2009 in Montana that talks about the presence and absence of these species and also how to identify and even sex those turtles. So how can you tell male versus female? So there's really great resources out there if you're ever um, unsure of what species you're looking at. You know, take a photograph, compare it to what's online, maybe use something like iNaturalist and see if you can upload that photo see if you can get responses back or obviously if you have an injured turtle or a sick turtle or one that you're not really sure if you find eggs and they're you know damaged for some reason or something call us at the wildlife center at 608-287-3235 we do work with a lot of these turtles and so many other species so we are available to hopefully answer your questions about them thanks for listening today about soft shell turtles here in wisconsin on wort this has been wildlife weekly Time to bust out your calculators because this week on Radio Astronomy, host Rourke Habegger finds out why even minute changes in gravity are important given a physical law called the weak equivalence principle. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. Last week, a French aerospace lab proved the weak equivalence principle to one part in a quadrillion. Never heard of the equivalence principle, let alone the weak one? I'm Rourke, and today I'll help you get a grasp on this important result in astrophysics. The equivalence principle has been around since Isaac Newton proposed it, and it has been a fundamental part of physics since. When Albert Einstein reformulated gravity, he had to go back and re-examine this principle and its implications. The equivalence principle is something bigger than Newton's theory of gravity and Einstein's general relativity. Both those theories are built on an equivalence principle. The weak equivalence principle is Newton's original equivalence principle. It says that the gravitational weight of an object is directly proportional to the mass of that object. Applying this to an object accelerating in a gravitational field, it means that that object's acceleration is independent of its mass, i.e. a tennis ball and a bowling ball will fall from a building at the same acceleration, hitting the ground at the same time. This concept has been around for the Earth's gravitational field since before Newton. Galileo proved it by dropping spheres with different masses from the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. 
In modern times, we can test the weak equivalence principle to a higher precision than just looking at when balls hit the ground. If an object's inertial mass, which is related to an object's momentum, differs from its gravitational mass related to the force of gravity on the object, if those differ by some amount, then the acceleration of the object in a gravitational field will be affected. Since the early 1900s, scientists have been attempting to measure this difference, if there is any. Often, scientists test the difference in inertial and gravitational mass by putting two objects of different weights in the same gravitational field and measuring their relative acceleration. Their relative acceleration can then be expressed as a unitless fraction, call it the Eötvös ratio. This ratio is what scientists attempt to measure. Before this experiment, we knew the Eötvös ratio was smaller than a 10 trillionth, or 10 to the minus 13. Now we know it is smaller than a quadrillionth, or 10 to the minus 15. This allows us to be confident in theories like general relativity, which assume the weak equivalence principle is true. 10 to the minus 15 seems like zero to me and you. However, when we get into theories of quantum gravity, this number could be very important when other interactions, like electromagnetism or nuclear forces, get involved. Therefore, knowing this number to a high precision helps us understand gravitation on a more fundamental level. To get to this low number, scientists in France launched a satellite into Earth's orbit. In orbit, it is a tiny laboratory free-falling through space. In that lab, there is a tiny setup of two objects with a bunch of gravitational sensors. Those sensors determine the acceleration experienced by those objects due to gravity and some electrostatic forces. From those measurements, the team calculated the lowest Eötvös ratio yet. Finally, there's also the strong equivalence principle, which requires the weak equivalence principle and throws in extra requirements, like requiring all the laws of physics be the same everywhere in the universe. That is a lot harder to test. So the focus is on the weak equivalence principle for now. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRIT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Christian Billings. Your reporter was Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the shoe. Thank you to our pledge rappers this evening, Jonah Chester and Tony Castaneda. Nate Buggy helped produce this newscast. Charlie Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, and thanks to all of you who called in your pledge to support this hour. You make it happen. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news at the Nuestro Patio. Good night.